I've been speaking about greatness, true greatness. And today I want to go on with this series by talking about walking in greatness. The Christmas story describes the giant leap of Christ who came from heaven to earth, but also there are many other people in this story, whether it is the giant leap of Jesus or the small steps of obedience that are recorded in the Christmas story. Each part has a place and it's all calling us to this wonderful fact that we can walk, every one of us, in greatness. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which you also have in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Forrest Gump, 1994 movie, starring Tom Hanks, Sally Field and others. If you remember the story, Forrest has a low IQ. But he achieves nearly everything others dream about although it didn't really matter to him. Do you remember that very famous quote when Forrest's mother was consoling him with the people who were calling him names, calling him stupid? And the mother repeated to Forrest, and he's telling the story, stupid is as stupid does. Do you remember that? If you don't, you should get out more. Never mind. <laughs> He was indeed a simpleton in the story, but pure in heart. And his good luck in life and his naive simplicity in his attitude led him to achieve the many things that others never achieve. Wealth, success, and happiness. So uh, this teaches us it's not what you say, it's not what others say, it's what you do that counts. I would change that expression. I don't think it will stick, but for today, let's hold on to it. Greatness is as greatness does. Greatness, after all, has got to be seen in the doing, not just the talking. I think greatness should be redefined in the dictionary as a verb. A doing word, not just a noun, a naming word. And a lot of things have been named in our society very recently. Many, many claims, many, many promises. 
But we would say in advance, would we not, if they would listen, to all those would-be purveyors of power, it's not what you promise in the election, it's what you do when you get to that position of government, whoever you are. So we've been thinking a lot about power, and I've chose that passage to speak on over, over Christmas time because it touches the Christmas story, and we shall see that very clearly in a moment. Because the Apostle Paul is addressing an issue, an issue of disunity, an issue of tribalism, an issue of people ganging up on each other in their local church called Philippi. Now, it's important to us because one of the things that we are concerned most about is the division that there is in our nation. And whoever is going to take this on will have to heal division. And a lot of that has to do with attitude. And so instead of pointing the finger at our politicians and pointing the finger at society, let us begin with ourselves and ensure that humility, which is the absence of ego, at least not putting our ego into operation to the point of self-promotion, hunger for power, self-satisfaction, and the converse of that is putting other people down that we might look better ourselves. That unity is vital in the spirit and the humility that gives rise to unity as we see in Jesus' humility. But not just those attitudes, but in actions. And this is what I want to say to you today. That every tiny step of obedience with the tiny little cross that is in our hearts when we say no to self and yes to Christ. When we do that not in order to be seen by others, but when we do it in such a way that the glory of Christ becomes visible to others because of how we live. Not just by what we say. Now, I want to pause there. Not just by what we say. We have to talk the talk. We have to proclaim him. But it's not enough just to talk the talk. We have to walk the walk. Not just by what we say, but by what we do. Can you imagine if people going to the polls on Thursday would have the occasion just to pause for a moment and say, hmm, before I mark my vote, let me reflect a little bit on those amazing people in our society those Christians who serve in our community. Those people who are at the other end of a phone when somebody is at the point of suicide day and night. The people who will give of their substance to charitable work, not in order to be impressive or to impress others, but because we know that what we have, the good things we have, we are there to share, we are there to love, and we are there to serve. I wonder what a difference that would have made if the people who are running for office in this next week would have in the back of their minds, we can't forget those Christians. And we have already been airbrushed out of the election, already airbrushed, and increasingly so, out of education, out of even our history. And so any manifesto of faith and religion almost has nothing to do with Christian people. 
And so we must look closer to home and say, God, help me to be more like Jesus. Not just by the songs I sing, the music I listen to, the way that I dress, or the amount of times I attend church services. But tomorrow, when everybody's mind is on Monday morning, sorry, Monday morning, or Wednesday afternoon, that the beautiful things, the great spiritual truths that we embrace and celebrate and sing on Sunday not just remain songs for the nighttime, songs for the daytime, for the rest of the week, but become living realities in how we respond, how we live, how we talk to one another, how we talk to others, how we stretch out a hand of encouragement, assistance to those in our communities. Putting it into action. I often think of the seemingly infinite chasm that exists between knowing and doing. Just imagine if everything we knew, including your speaker this morning, everything we knew we did. Wow. If everything I knew I did, I'd be so holy, I'd probably be embarrassing to meet in the street. But we have to admit it. It is easier for us to be hearers of the word than also to be doers. Let's not beat ourselves up about it, but let's ask God to give us the capacity to increasingly put our faith into practical action. And that's just what we see in Jesus. This giant leap, that huge step that Jesus took which we'll look at in a moment, to come into this planet modelled by Jesus and seen, if, if you look at the Christmas story from this perspective, it's quite enlightening. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole Christmas story because undoubtedly we're doing it. Simon is doing the songs which are recorded, the Christmas songs which are recorded, and other speakers will do that for you. But I want to begin with the heavenly story. I want to begin with the spiritual reality. That's why I chose a passage from the book of Philippians where Paul waxes eloquent in his own poetic inspiration or maybe he borrowed that from an existing worship song. Either way, it doesn't matter. Sublime spiritual truth. It speaks of the majesty of Christ. The one who was on an equality with God. He was in the very form of God. And I've chosen to, the understanding of the word form means much more the appearance, the trappings, the visible signs of divinity, the glory of Christ. And, and his majesty was there and, and he felt it keenly. It wasn't something that it was mere, mere formality. You know, mere heavenly royal protocol. The majesty of Christ as being the Son of God was the same majesty of God the Father. And this was His. But He chose to lay it on one side. The Bible says He emptied Himself. 
The King James Version translates it, he made himself of no reputation. We understand it in the terms of Graham Kendrick, the, the popular modern hymn writer. You laid aside your majesty. He laid it all on one side. He, he took instead of the form of majesty, he took the form of a servant. So there's his majesty. We read about his motive. When Jesus does this, he does it as a genuine self-expression, as the Son of God, a servant, the servant of the Lord. And one of the reasons why I think the Bible chooses the word Father and Son to describe the first and second persons of the Trinity is, the, is this sonship attitude that the Son exists to glorify the Father, the Son exists to fulfill the will of the Father and to honour the Father. That doesn't make him inferior. He is not in subordination, but he is in submission. Bible understanding, Son, is very similar to a submissive one, a one who in loving, will, willing, joyful submission says to the Father, yes, I will go. His motive from a willing heart expressing who he is as the Son of God, that motive is to honour God and to bless humanity. Loving the Father and serving humanity. If you're making notes, write that down. Loving the Father and serving others. That, I believe, is the essence of walking. Small steps, though they may be, walking in greatness. So we have his majesty, we have his motive. And look at the means. So all very well say, yes, I will become saviour. I'll become redeemer. But in order to do that, the means of achieving God's plan was he had to become human, become a man. Taking an additional human nature, adding it to his already existing divine nature, so he becomes the God-man, Christ Jesus. Verse 8, and being found in human form. You see, the form here is he really became human. It was not, not a show. But what we saw, instead of majesty, and the effulgence of scintillating glory, resplendent in all that that means. But we see him as an ordinary person. That's, that's what he took. The prophet said there was nothing about him that made him mark out. I, I reckon Jesus was good looking. I don't know, I can't prove that. Uh, but, but you wouldn't say, oh, well, have you seen? There goes God. There goes God. You, you could just walk him past in the street. You, you might notice something. Say, oh, that's an interesting person. But you wouldn't have known by looking at him that he was God manifested in the flesh. He took on human form. And in human form, he humbled himself. So the means was not just by stepping down from heaven. And by the way, the humanity he embraces, he keeps forever. We will see the man, Christ Jesus, in heaven. But there in his humanity, he humbled himself. Now, all kinds of humanities, are there not? All kinds of different people. 
But he was humble. And he was obedient. I think the outworking of humility is always obedience. Find me a proud person and I'll find you a disobedient person. Well, they'll be the same person. Find me and show me an obedient person and I will show you a humble person. Isn't that what it's out? We come down to, isn't this the pride and tell me what to do? These knees bow to nobody. I am my own boss. I am the master of my destiny. I am that I am. No, the clever people have got that. I was playing on the revelation of the name of God who is the only I am. I would just say, putting it quite simply, most of us, most of the time, are too full of ourselves. Can I have an amen in the house of God? Amen. Those who don't say amen, just say ouch. Or you could point to the person next to you, he's talking about you. <laughs> but remember, several fingers are pointing, pointing back to you. The majesty, the motive, the means was to fulfill a mission. He came as Messiah. There was a mission to bring the kingdom. The kingdom comes when the king arrives. That's why the kingdom will come in the fullness of its manifestation when Jesus returns again. And he will return this time with the form of the majesty of the glory of God. The king was recognized by some very strange people, and this is not in my text. I'm going to choose Luke to talk about the Christmas story, and the, the magi, the wise men, are very much in Matthew's story, but I'll steal that for a moment from the, one of the other Gospels. The wise men from the East. Very interesting been doing quite a bit of study on it, probably take another year to study it fully. But these men saw in the stars the sign of Messiah. We don't like to think about that because we think, oh, astrology is from the devil. And what it became certainly was as a way of divining future and, and so forth outside of the Spirit of God. But God has written the message of the gospel in the heavens. And these men were discerning enough to see that the signs in the heavens were pointing to the birth of Messiah, the exact time, the very exact spot. And they made a very long journey on camels and donkeys or whatever else they did. And they said, we have come to see him, the one who is born king of the Jews. But their fascination with the king of the Jews was a testimony, a tiny Holy Spirit evidence, early evidence, that Jesus was not come just for one nation, one race, the Jews. No, he came for all humanity as well as his own people. So his humanity was an indispensable condition, precondition for our salvation. He became a man, human, that we, humanity, might be redeemed. That we might be brought back to God. That we might be, in the words of the hymn, ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven and it was a sacrificial death this is the essence of the gospel Jesus was 
the substitute sacrifice for the sins of the world. In our opening prayer, we were thinking about the passing of Reinhard Bonnke, one of the greatest evangelists of our times. Not very long ago, Billy Graham, perhaps the greatest evangelist of history. We don't know what God thinks about that, but it certainly seems to me to be a good evaluation. And both those men lived and died proclaiming one message, Christ crucified, the substitute sacrifice for the sins of the world. And I stress that today, not just because those evangelists are on my mind, but because I see that message being decentralized, pushed to the margins. And we present Christ as the answer to all kinds of things. And I'm sure he is. But in the first instance, he is the answer to the sin problem which separates you from God. And without that reconciliation, you will be separated by your sin from God forever. It's your choice, of course, but I'm not saying, you know, take it, have it, take it or leave it. I'm saying I want to encourage you to take it because of the of the importance of such a decision. And we must in our ministry in Kensington Temple, London City Church, and right across the world, we must continue to make the cross central because the cross is the only healing power for the sin sickness of humanity. So that is the kind of um, spiritual background. But now we need to go into the foreground, or, or should we say the down-to-ground. Not the heavenly stuff, the down-to-ground. The down-to-ground stuff. And here Luke, I've chosen Luke because he was a close companion of Paul and putting Luke's story of the earthly outworking of what Paul later elaborates from the spiritual perspective. Putting these two together, we get both heaven and earth. And we find here, in Luke's account, of course, Jesus is the main character. It is all about the giant leap, the big step that he took, the great step that he took to definitively establish God's story and the means by which we are able to discern what is great and what is not great. So Jesus is the center. But I want to encourage you because I find so many tiny steps, small steps, one giant step for divinity, many small steps for humanity. I still think it is 50 years since the moon landing, so I had to get that one in. Elizabeth and Zechariah, in Luke's Gospel, you remember them. Zechariah is in uh, the temple ministering, and there's an angelic appearance, and, and he struggles with it because... These people in their old age, I wonder what old age was or middle age was in those days. Probably 29. I don't know. But anyway, they were past the age when by in that period people, you know, had children. And uh, they, they thought that was it. But God said no. It sent the messenger. Sent the, and Zachariah struggled with it. And so he had to learn, if you can't say anything intelligent, say nothing at all. Hmm. Many of my wisest moments have been when I've kept my mouth shut. So if you keep your mouth shut long enough, people will think you're wise. Open your mouth and you'll disprove it straight away. So he said, okay, hold your tongue. 
And then later it came out with a wonderful burst of praise and, and, and Elizabeth. And, and these are people who in their lifetime took a tiny step. And that tiny step of a lifetime was made up of many, 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 many tiny steps. Do not despise the tiny steps. Don't despise them. It's mundane. I'm not telling my story in the, uh, 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 the documentary. You know, of course, a lot of the stuff is the highlights. And I look at the highlights and I think, whew, 85 minutes of highlights. Let's take 66 years of the lowlights. Because there is a lot of day-to-day boring drudgery like getting out of bed in the morning anyway no never mind about that but those tiny steps build up to bigger steps which build up to a bigger story and we are walking in greatness when we're following Jesus Christ Mary the handmaiden of the Lord she said be it to me according to your word she was a humble woman But God used her as a vehicle to bring the one who would destroy the wise and the mighty. The high and the mighty. The arrogant. I like her song. Luke 1, 51 to 50. Those verses from verse 51. She's singing praise. God has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. God is on the side of the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the excluded And in some way or another, without being political, overly political, I see traces of that aspiration in all of the political parties because they know what they're there for, which is to help people. Now, of course, they disagree, bitterly disagree, about the strategy of doing it. But let's at least rejoice that there is that understanding that government should be on the side of ordinary people. And to give ordinary people the opportunity to grow and to fulfill their potential. The nativity itself, an unlikely place for one born to be king, wrapped in in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. Would you expect God to be come to a manger? Where would you expect him to stay? If you talk to people who've travelled around calling themselves missionaries, pretty soon the subject revolves around two things. The places I've slept and the food I've eaten. We try to outdo one another. Oh, that's nothing. I, (laughs) I slept head to toe with others with chickens nesting on my shoulders. Oh, that's nothing. I slept in a ditch. (laughs) And we described the food. Uh, What I've come, and please, please don't anybody be embarrassed about this because God is giving me increasing faith. But I always know when to pray in tongues. When they say, oh, pastor, we have prepared a very special delicacy for you. Now, the delicacy usually is something extraordinary. 
not just spicy, I can take spicy, but let's get back to the message. <laughs> would you have expected him, like I would, that he would at least be born with maximum publicity, I mean visibility? With a globally orchestrated red carpet, a coordinated welcome in all the languages of the world, would you not have expected him at least to be born a prince in a palace rather than a servant, servant in a cattle trough? Now, all those contrasts lose their power over us because we're so used to them. But this Christmas, try to imagine it's the first time you're hearing it. it it's absolutely extraordinary. The place of his birth, obscure, yes, very well ratified by prophetic testimony that Bethlehem is the place where Messiah would be born, but people hardly remembered that. So God has to remind them by giving the shepherds a small part in the nativity story, the real one. By the time you've got Mary and Joseph and you've got, you've casted them in your school play, and you've got the angel Gabriel and the wise men. Who are you left with? Tea towels. Shepherds dressed up in tea towels. I don't think I progressed further in my nativity career beyond the third shepherd. They're, they're there, they're nice, but they don't really say much and don't figure much. But in God's story, their tiny steps of obedience... Their role in the story, they were taking small steps in, a, in, in the pathway of greatness. Why? Because not only was this Bethlehem, but outside of Bethlehem, the shepherds, we are told, kept the sheep that would ultimately be sacrificed in the temple. God was saying, he is born to be king, but this king is also born to die and rise again. How amazing. When we think about all of this, greatness is as greatness does. And we're seeing greatness lived out in small, tiny steps. And we may not be part of that Christmas story, but we are part of this Christmas story. It's the same story. God has got only one story, and it's not boring. He doesn't have to repeat it, because the story is still being told. And we haven't yet got to the great end of this story. Praise God for the humble witnesses of the shepherds. Praise God for Simeon and Anna. You don't find them on Christmas cards. And by the way, uh, have, you, uh, have you stayed paper in your Christmas cards? How many people have stayed paper? Oh, a few of you. So if I send you an electronic one, it'll be good enough. Is that right? <laughs> well, the electronic Christmas cards, they're great, but they still look just a little too pretty. I know it's a lovely scene. So I'm hoping for the day when they won't just be electronic, but they will also carry not just a visual message, but an olfactory message. In other words, not just what we see, but what we smell. Because if we can have smelly Christmas cards, then I would be very interested to know what kind of smells they will put. Probably not the smells of cattle, but maybe frankincense. But that's what Jesus' first breath smelt. 
Cattle. Simeon and Anna, they were frequenters of the temple. Simeon was a prophet of the Lord looking and waiting for the consolation of Israel. Lord, you are letting now your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He recognized what very few recognized, and that was his tiny step, his tiny part in this story of greatness. And Anna, later on, she was a lady. She's like some of the ladies that I know, usually from Ghana or Nigeria, who never leave the house of God. They're always here. They're always praying. They're always seeking God. Walk past them and you're bound to get a prophecy or three. <laughs> but Anna, this prophetess, she singled out what we now call the Holy Family. And it says in verse 38 of Luke 2, Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. But there is an even more poignant point where Simeon at one point turns to Mary and says, remember this, a sword is going to pierce your heart also. Very strange words. Almost mystical. Something was almost like a puzzle or a clue. But it was a seed of mercy sown in Mary's heart to know that the day would come when she would be heartbroken. And at the cross, Mary witnessed her own son, beaten, bruised, battered, crucified, and who dies before her very eyes. Not just for Mary, but for us to know that all of this was the plan of God because these little seeds were seeds which were to flower in the fullness of the story and they were also the tiny seeds of the greatness that awaits us as we walk in the purposes of God. So how can you walk in the path of greatness. Do you see now that whatever you do in humility and in obedience, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it doesn't make you feel good at the time, you are walking in the footsteps of those who are telling the greatest story that could ever be told. Tiny steps in the path of greatness. Every small step of surrender. Every time you go, mm, no, I will choose not to say that. No, I will choose not to react in that way. When people offend us, we don't offend back. Every action made in dependence and trust. It is a path of trust. Because, you see, the process is, first, you deny the self. Second, 
you find your life. First, you crucify the self. Second, you find resurrection power. That's the path of the kingdom. Humble yourself and you will be exalted. Exalted. Say no to sin and you will be liberated. Say no to retaliation and you may be vindicated, if not on earth, in heaven, where it won't matter anymore because your eyes will be upon him. Every negative thought that you reject, and you know, just in the same ways, acts of greatness are made of tiny steps, so acts of wickedness and, and disaster are often made by tiny steps. You know, the best time to deal with the stuff that pulls you away from God is at the very moment the first thought hits your mind. You say, ah, get out of here. And, and that makes it easier later on. And you know, sometimes it, it's not what you do, it's what you think. You know what? I shall tell you, tell you a story. What happened was I was a very new, very new believer. I lived with an impossible landlord who brought in an impossible landlady. You need to know how impossible they really are. Are you, uh, is my, got sympathy yet? Shall I try again? It was really difficult. They made my life misery. <laughs> and one day, it was a relatively small thing, but, but it was like one thing after hundreds of things. And I, I, I was beginning to boil. It was a long time ago, years before I was sanctified, And I sat there in my little bedsit room thinking that person ought to be grateful that I'm a Christian. Because if I wasn't a Christian, I would do this, I would do that, I would do this, I would do that. Next day, it happened. <laughs> if I had just said, hey, stop, 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 that's not Jesus, stop, stop it. It might have been easier. Every refusal to offend. Every choice to give a word of encouragement rather than a word of criticism. Every time you decide to let go of second things and, and stop pursuing them and say, God, you take care of that. I will seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Every time you choose to obey God, even when it doesn't feel good. Every time, not only are you participating in this great story, you are on the pathway of greatness. Not just the path to greatness, but on the pathway of greatness. So I encourage you. You too can walk in the path of greatness. It may not appear so to be others, but God sees and he knows that that thing that you're doing, that thing you're refusing to do, those things make up a story that is still being told. The story of God's love and restoration of humanity through Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior.